Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. I'm rocking the mic solo. Frank the Tank is still in Idaho with the uh, Mormon Mafia, uh, drinking monsters, not coffee. But uh, today I've got the super cool, uh, very, very, very well knowledge John Dudley from Knock On TV. John, thanks for uh, thanks for hopping on. What's up, dude? <laughs> Nothing. Appreciate you having me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's the it's the least I can do after uh, the one we did. Um, the uh, John and I just did a podcast on on his podcast, and uh, we covered a lot um, talking about front of center and maybe some of the myths and questions behind um, what actual FOC is and how important it is, um, which um, got quite a bit of questions after we did the podcast, you know, in the last 24 hours, uh, a lot of messages, a few weird ones. Um I don't. I don't know about you. I uh, I got uh, uh, a, a few guys that I think heard what they want to and and didn't hear what they probably should have. But overall, I think it was pretty well received. Yeah, yeah, it was well received. There was clarity there, and you know, it's just like anything else. You tell the same story to ten people and have them tell it back to you, and the chances of it coming back to you the same as what you just said is not very high and I think some of the people definitely thought thought we were kind of going down a slightly different path than we did but you know you just have to let them figure it out uh I mean I'm not a I'm not anti-FOC I think it's critical I you know I just feel like uh trying to just get over a certain percentage FOC no matter what, like if that's the baseline, just like when people say, I have to have a, a bullet hole first, you know, some of the best bows I've ever had shooting and, and won medals with were not able to shoot a perfect bullet hole in order to achieve what they needed to at the range I had to, to compete at. And that's just, you know, mainly because sometimes the, you know, the ballistics, characteristics had to be slightly different for the types of conditions I were in and maybe that arrow was a little loose coming out um, but stabilized fast enough to where it made up for it downrange ballistically so there's always factors and I think what was most important is the point that you brought up of you know don't don't forget the art of just knowing how to work on gear and knowing that you know there's more variables then there are certainties, and if people just kind of pay attention to the to the basics and probably the, like some of the rules of physics, but then also just pay attention to the results that they're getting when they make changes one way or the other, that's what matters most. And I mean, uh, when it comes to FOC, it, I think it'd be hard for someone to to tell me that I'm that I haven't been doing it right because I've had success the way that I've done it, but I don't think I've ever hunted with FOC over 15%. And you know, it's I, well, I've probably never hunted with FOC over 16%. So it's hard for me to 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 agree with people that just want to jump on a 20% number and go uh, because. I think you're going to run into a lot of other issues along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, 
the, for the people that messaged me, the three of you, if you're listening to this, that said uh, John and I were anti-FOC, I think you heard what you wanted to and should pay attention and listen to it again because I would say I'm pro Aeroflight and, and pro, you know, mastering the art. Uh, and in 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 one way or another, your FOC will probably be a little higher when you get your bow set up, depending. But I mean, I'm shooting high FOC on my uh, stick bow arrows. It's just on the compound. I went ahead and and checked my FOC last night. Um, you know, comically as uh, Kaylee and Amy are, Amy are trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing as I'm balancing this arrow on my finger, and uh, I was trying to figure out over the last six or seven years what my FOC was, and almost exact on every arrow, it was eleven to thirteen. You know what I mean? <laughs> every every one. And yeah, me. Go ahead. I was gonna say me too. That like that thirteen number is is probably about bang on for the majority. I've I know I've shot as high as sixteen um, when I was shooting uh, when I was trying to shoot like super super big stuff in in Africa. I know that I was big mainly because I was having to just get overall arrow weight. So I just had that heavy of a point and in like the dangerous game shafts, they did make a, you know, a 250 spine, which quickly starts to allow me to, to do those kinds of things at my draw length. But, um, yeah, there's, there's, I'm certainly not anti FOC. I just know that there, there are systems or there is assist like the Valkyrie system that it's given people the ability to do that pretty quick. Um, with certain sha- with very certain shafts, um, but you know, there's a lot of people that are Eastern guys. There's a lot of people that are gold tip guys. There's a lot of people that have a certain shaft that they like, and for them to to get just those numbers, if that's what they're focusing on, they're going to sacrifice speed, or I mean, uh, sacrifice accuracy as well as as well as speed, because they're just going to be loading the front without really paying attention to the other things that are important, which is obviously a speed that you can hunt with, be able to get multiple pins on an animal, and then also just the ability to to shoot better because the spine is properly matched for your bow, regardless of the point weight. I mean, you know, I shoot shoot 300 grain points um, on 2613s, but... You know, I shoot 220 grain points on 2315s, and then, you know, I'm totally fine shooting 120 grain points on X10s. Um, and it all is based on, you know, I was having to shoot shafts uh, that were larger in diameter in order to help me with my scoring. And, and because they were that big, they were overspined for my setup. So in order to get them to spine correctly. I had to I had to load the points up that heavy just so that the spine the arrow uh spine and the you know the way the arrow would flex was was adequate to get perfect arrow flight in in the best grouping I could out of that shaft size. So, you know, it was almost like you know, it's almost like reverse engineering when you're a target shooter because you're you're trying to decide first what arrow do I need for this competition, and then you're learning to play with point weights 
to make the arrow work. Whereas right now, some hunters are wanting to play with, literally pick the point weight first and then go backwards. And I just think that, you know, when it comes to, to really finding the best accuracy, um, you got to learn the art of both and, and merge them together, you know, but, but don't do it with, with certainties on numbers, you know, because my FOC has varied a lot over the years. And, you know, it's not like I can tell you this year I was shooting this arrow and I just never could, I just never filled my tags because I was seven and a half FOC. I mean, it, it just isn't that way, you know. There's so many factors that people should consider, and that's what we were trying to do is put those factors on the table based off two guys that have a lot of experience with actually having their own arrows go through animals. And that's, you know, those, those are the real-life situations or, or the ones that are going through animals, not necessarily the ones that are just hitting target. Right, and, I, and I've definitely, I mean, as you've learned, I'm a bit what did you say brash a little bit um i don't have a very good sensor and i've had people come into kafaru and ask you know obviously they talk about packs whatever but you know i have, have archery questions and I, I i shit you not uh aaron i'm I'm at 16 percent foc i really want to get to 19 and i'm like uh why well i just think i'll feel more comfortable at 19 and i'm like yeah, why? I mean, what? What <laughs> was nineteen a good number last year? Like, why nineteen? Like, what? You know, where where did you read that archery talk? Like, why not? What? You know, what? Like, I'm like, what? What did nineteen? Where did nineteen come from? Or twenty? Right? I got to get over twenty. And I'm like, are you shooting good now? Yeah. I'm like, is your bow quiet? Yeah. Is it grouping good? Uh mm-hmm. huh. All right. You got good momentum. Yeah. Good speed. Yeah. Well, why the fuck do you want to go to nineteen or twenty? Like, what's it? You know, and these people, and I'm only saying that because this just happened, was I'm like, you're sacrifice. it's like you're walking past elk to go try and find elk. You're walking through a good setup to an unknown setup that you don't know if it's going to be better. And again, it, it could be, and if you just like to tinker around, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you, if you don't have the, I, I guess, the depth of knowledge to do it on your own and you're trying and you're asking me questions uh, about how to get will it tune what do i need to do you know things like that it's like m- maybe just keeping the setup you've got if you've been consistent with that is is better and i mean one of the uh, there's several things i wanted to go over with you but like one of the, the way that i set up a bow uh, and i get this question a lot as far as the way that i choose an arrow um, or the way if a guy asks me to set a bow up for him, normally what I do, and I'm going to kind of run down it quickly with what I do, and then I kind of want to get your views on how, how you do it. Um, and so usually if a guy wants me to set up a bow for him, I'm setting up my own, I have a speed that I generally want to try and hit. And so let's, I'm going to go over me personally. And normally I like to be between 265 and 280 roughly, you know, 270, 280, whatever, somewhere in there. And so knowing that I'm going to have a bow and it has an IBO speed and that IBO speed is uh, 30 inches of draw length at 70 pounds at five grains per pound, which is a 350 grain arrow, which that number you're never going to 
actually hit that number. But um, I have a 29-inch draw length, and so automatically I know that I'm going to lose roughly 10 feet per second dropping down, you know, the inch. So I've went from, well, let's just say the, the bow IBO is at 330. So now I'm at 320 because I'm at a 29-inch draw. And then you're adding a peep and a knock set and things like that. That's going to deduct more speed, and I'm just, to keep numbers even, I'm going to say another 10 feet per second. So I've went from 330, now I'm down to 320, and now I'm down to 310. And then I know I'm going to want to shoot, let's say I want to try and shoot a 500 grain arrow, and I roughly, you lose roughly, these aren't exact numbers, three feet per second for every 10 grains of arrow weight I'm adding. Again, these are rough numbers. They're not exact. So I know that I'm adding 150 grains, um, you know, to my arrow. So I'm going to lose 45 feet per second. So I deduct 45 feet per second off of 310 and I'm at whatever the hell that adds up to be. Let's see. I got to use my fingers here. 265. Okay. So that's rough numbers, right? So that gets me um, you know, roughly, uh, an arrow weight to get me around 265. That's kind of how I start the base numbers. Now, how, how do you do that? Uh, isn't it totally different than what I'm doing? And, um, it, or do you, do you even screw around with what I, what, the way that I do it? At one time, yes. Um, but at the present time, like as I'm sitting here, I'm actually sitting in my little dojo right now. And, there's one, two, three, four, the skin out of control, five, six, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. There's fourteen bows in boxes that that people have sent here that are like favors of like really good friends or favors of favors or like company GMs or you know, and so one when you're building that many, it's very similar to an archery shop that just starts to know, like, you know, we're setting up guys at 2870. This arrow that we've already done the homework for has been working. Good. You know, I've just kind of got to the point, if you've ever watched any of my live feeds, like, my entire room, my personal room, is 360 degrees of chalkboard. Um, so there's literally, at like, looking around, I can see... I can see Don Jr., I can see Trevor, I can see Adam, I can see Joe's Black Mamba, I can see Aubrey's notes. I mean, so I'm able to just look over right now and say, okay, well, you know, Joe's Black Mamba, you know, was a 28-and-a-half, 84-pound bow, and I ended up finishing with an FMJ 300 at 26-and-5-eighths-inch length with a nocturnal. So... I mean, and I know how that bow already shot, so I don't have to like do it as the way that you did then. And I'm a little bit the the thing that I'm limited on when it comes to knowledge and when people ask me things is arrows are time consuming, and especially if you listen to what you just did, because if you don't, if you're not building so many, then the way that you do it is essentially the way that I would do it. Part of the reason why I just corner myself into um, into the eastern corner is because of my, you know, I've been there like 24 years, so I, I understand the shafts and what my limitations are within those. 
So to all of a sudden bring in a black eagle or bring in a gold tip, both of those, well, you know, both of those companies are Carbon Express. They make good shafts and they make a great arrow and great options for configurations. But for me to like have to go back and learn each one of those at the level that I've learned every Easton, um, you know, literally everything in the Easton grocery store. Um, it's just, I don't, I don't have the capacity. Yeah, so it sucks. that's I can... why if, you know, if someone says, which I, I did I actually had, um, a guy that, uh, bid on the bow that, that, um, won the, the hurricane Harvey, um, fundraiser that I did. And, um, Will's, Will's bow, he shoots Valkyries. He shoots a whole Valkyrie system. So I just told him, send me the arrows that you have and whatever, like point variations you have. And then, and then I'm going to reverse engineer from there. And that's what I did. So I kind of put, set it up with the new bow that he had. And I said, okay, right now you're wanting to shoot this poundage. I actually found that these things will shoot a little bit better at three pounds lighter. So I, I ended up telling him, I said, so at this point, here's your options. Shoot three pounds lighter, um, which is which is a tuning method that I think I named myself. Um, it's a tuning method I came up with uh, probably about 15 years ago that I call the, the hill method. And the hill method um, is pretty much you shooting arrows downrange and then the horizontal impact variation of your arrow shafts is a reflection of how the shaft is tuning to your bow. And, you know, this is an important thing. You know, when people say tune your bow, I, you know, bows I can set up in like 30 minutes and I can literally eyeball the rest, eyeball the, you know, the knocking point I'm tying, you know, theoretically I want an arrow at 90 degrees, you know, if I can't have it at 90 degrees, then there's either something that's wrong with either, um, you know, launcher blade pressure, uh, speed the arrow rest is coming down, or there's a serious case of really poor knock travel in the system. So ideally, 90 is my starting point, and then my center shot is always through the riser, through the tiller bolt, you know, when I'm looking overhead. Any flex in the riser after that, I'm, you know, depending on the system, I might have to make a left and right adjustment. But I'm trying to set things up very basic on the bow. But then the real kind of art of fine-tuning the best group you can comes from the arrows. And um, in, my, in my seminars, I actually have slides from the years where I shot with the teams and did so much testing with different types of arrow shafts at long range. And I literally have slides of where it's like, okay, what does everyone think of this group? And everyone's like, holy crap. And, and actually there's, um, it was, it was like the header photo for my, for my website for a long time. It was, you know, 12 X's, you know, at 90 meters stuffed in the target. Well, then I said, okay, how about this group? And it was like, you know, couple X's, several tens, and then, you know, there's a nine out this way, another nine out that way, and then, you know, one kind of risking an eight. Was and it, I said, okay. Was the shitty group with a bullet hole and the other one with a bad tune? <laughs> well, no, they, <laughs> they were both the exact same bow with two different spine arrows that were 
and it was it was two spine categories off like it, you know and it and so it was just a reflection of even if your bow is set up perfectly if the arrow doesn't match then it, you're you're all you know your percentage of impact for perfect hits just goes down and you know sometimes it's just like lottery of just rolling the dice if you have a bow that's squirrely like that and if you put it in a shooting machine and it's just it's not even capable of shooting, you know, 10 tens in a row, there's times where one arrow just is always kind of going off, but that happens to be the arrow where you're off the target to the right and the shot breaks and you freaking just see it go in the middle. You don't know that if you would have been center, that thing wouldn't even have hit the 10. Like sometimes when you're improperly spined, you do have these like shithouse luck type situations but when it comes to like really doing it that's um you know that that's the way to know you know shooting machine different spines and you know tuning is really done in the arrows and yeah there's with the people that i work with i know the arrows that are going to be in the speed realm they already want but from there what i do which is similar to what you do um is I have to ask the question, what broadhead do you want to shoot? And where, what's this hunt for? Like, those are the two questions that I have to ask people. Because if someone says, um, yeah, well, you know, I drew, um, you know, I drew Scottsdale for antelope and I'm going out there. Well, okay. So it's pretty damn open. You're going to have wind. Like me putting a four inch vein on your arrow is not a wise choice. Like, and if they say, well, I really want to shoot a land shark, okay, well, crap, now, yeah, we, we're going to need some rear steering power, right? So, if, but if they say, you know what, um, I'm totally fine with, uh, with, uh, an original Rage, uh, XP, then, yeah, okay, now, dude, I can put, I can put a, you know, Pro Max, you know, little low profile 2.0 on there in a four fletch. And we're going to town, you know, but it's, it's, it's really relative to what they want to shoot. Um, and, you know, with Rogan's bows, sometimes they vary, you know, the offset that I'm putting on his arrows, um, will vary just depending on which head that he's kind of really preferring to shoot because he, you know, he likes to try a lot of different things. So, oh, I know. Those, those are, <laughs> yeah, those are the two questions that I have to, to deal with. And, um, is really what's that? What's that? The conditions surrounding this arrow from a hunting situation. Well, I did it for target too. A lot of people said, How, you know, why did you always have to have three target bows? I didn't have three target bows because I was worried about one breaking down. I was always preparing one ahead for multiple weeks down the road. Um, you know, if I shot at a tournament in Gainesville, Florida, the conditions were much different there than if I. You know, if I found out two days before I'm leaving that, you know, the pros are going to be shooting in Bedford out on the K course, which is in the prairie. And I know that there's wind ripping and everything else. So, yeah, I'm going to go out there with an ACC 349, and that's going to be the bow that I carry out that day rather than carrying out one where I'm, you know, shooting fat boys or something like that, you know. So um, the arrow characteristics have to first be decided on based on the the conditions around it and with hunting 
the conditions are, you know, distance. Are you, you know, are you a whitetail guy? Are you whitetail big timber Wisconsin? Okay, you're you're not shooting past 40 yards, dude, ever. Let's make this thing, you know, low and slow, um, and you're going to be totally fine. You know, diameter really doesn't even totally come into factor, you know, unless it's just drag for penetration going through the animal. But then if, you know, if you talk to a Western guy and, you know, he's really wanting to do, you know, muleys later in the season where, you know, you're probably just not going to stock up on five bedded bucks, you know, he's going to end up hunting with, you know, multiple eyeballs looking at them. They're rutting. You got all the does there. You're trying to get to the buck, but there's does between you and there. So a lot of times you're forced with those longer shots. Well, now you need to really be deciding on having an arrow that's going to be able to, you know, to have minimal drift and also retain some speed at those lower, those longer yardages. And one that's maybe just a little bit on the faster side, just so that you can keep that pin gap tight, you know, in case that buck's out there nosing around on does and he's going from, you know, 57 to 61, you know, those little things kind of play in. So my antelope bows, they're, they're set up different than if I know I'm going out west just for an elk hunt. You know, if I go out for just straight elk hunt, you know, and, and thicker, thicker timber stuff, you know, I'll go out there with an FMJ fully loaded and just, you know, be just taking a jackhammer out there versus, you know, if I'm going to Montana for, for antelope and whitetail at the same time, I'll, you know, I'll totally go with like my axis loaded the way that I want, or even, even that six millimeter axis. And I'll be fine with that. But for something like moose or bulls, I'm probably going to change it up. Right. Right. And I think, um, the, I'm trying not to make this podcast three hours because um, there's so much different I, stuff to cover. But like, what? <laughs> what one of the things that uh, I mean, I'm only laughing because of the times I've wanted to choke slam people on the range is I'm they're telling me one thing and I'm trying to explain to them another, and they're just not getting it. And one of the things you keep bringing up, which is, please everyone listen to this. You, in my opinion, you tune the arrow to the bow. You don't tune the bow to the arrow, so to speak, in, in my opinion. And th- what I mean by that is is I'm not too much different from John. I kind of eyeball, uh, you know, center shot. I, I get her 90 degrees or maybe just a hair knock high. Um, you know, I, I get the – before I even put an arrow on it, I've got everything more or less set up with, with Hoyts. Uh, I generally have to put a few twists in the – the left yoke because um probably the way I grip it obviously I get a little bit of a, a left hair and that'll take that out but when I a lot of pro shops a lot of people just order arrows have them cut to 28 inches throw a insert and a point on and then move the rest accordingly or do their very best where I personally um try to cut when I get the bow set up I start with the arrow a little bit longer than needed, you know, maybe an even an inch longer or more. And I have my preferred point weight or pretty close. And I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth, robbing Peter to pay Paul back, meaning I'm either going to shorten the arrow to stiffen it as I'm 
uh, you know, getting a, a paper tear, meaning I'm trying to get close to a bullet hole. I don't really give too much of a sh- shit about uh, paper tuning, but I, I'll fling her a few through just to get her close. Um, and I am um, micro tuning, I guess you could say, by the point weight or the length of the arrow. But then once you get that done, you also have your the back end of the arrow. Are you going to shoot offset or helical? two inch, three inch, four inch, um, offset. Um, and then when you're really getting into tuning, like really the down and dirty of it, um, that is when I I personally don't, um, worry too much about paper tuning. I mean, I do fling a few through to make sure it's not horrible, um, just to see, but I, I, I group tune and I also do, uh, what I call the tape method, where I do a horizontal and a vertical piece of tape, and I do that from 20 yards all the way out. Um, and what that's doing, for example, um, is it's letting me know, of course, you have to shoot well enough to be able to do this. Um, it's letting me know where my arrows are hitting, both for knock travel, high and low, and then left and right as well. And you can add and deduct poundage to your bow. You can add and deduct length. You can add and deduct point weight. Um, you know, I'll do that. And then I'll also, one of the things I'll do once I get it really dialed in is when I start messing with my veins. And, and I don't know if you do this, but I will set up three arrows uh, with one uh, system of fletching. I'll set another three up differently, another three up, and I'll generally have uh, nine or 12 total arrows. So three or four total different systems. And they're all, um, when I shoot them, I'm going to have a color coding system or a one, two, three, four system, meaning one set of arrows is going to be group one, the others group two, and I'll shoot those at 80 or a hundred yards. And I shoot it on a white piece of paper with a black dot in the middle and as I'm shooting these groups, I'm circling group, you know, I'm highlighting the different groups with different colored markers. And what that's going to tell me after about an hour of shooting, I'm going to be able to see which of those groups tighter than the others. Um, I don't know if that made any sense at all, but the proof is in the group. And I'm going to be able to see which maybe groups tighter. This is obviously wind out of the equation. And that's really getting down and dirty. But you're also, you know, poundage is another thing. And you brought that up and I was laughing earlier. People bottom their bow out and never touch it again, where sometimes a a crank or two off the bow will suck those groups in super tight. Um, And and again, these are my opinions. Like I have seen because you're changing the spine of the arrow or not changing the spine of the arrow, you're changing how that arrow, the the dynamics of it coming out of the bow when you're lowering or raising the poundage. And sometimes that's all it takes to, to suck that group in tight. Um, not to go down too many rabbit holes. Do you do anything remotely like what I just talked about? Yeah, pretty much like the hill method is, um, the hill method is just, a, you know, as you um, look at the arrow's left and right impact, which is essentially what you're doing with a piece of tape, um, you notice that, you know, certain things uh, certain things work really well, and then all of a sudden the next adjustment that you make, they move. But, you know, cutting, the, the problem with, 
arrows when you cut them to a length is you're done well, the really cool thing about some of the aftermarket com- arrow component systems out there right now the real benefit to them in my opinion is that it allows someone who's already cut their arrow to put something on there that's gonna you know that'll that'll help make up for that because they have more range in the their ability to change you know the weight on the front which essentially will kind of do what you said but three and a half pounds um forward or back three and a half pounds higher or three and a half pounds lower it'll show you instantly what direction you need to go um so if you have a bow and say you're shooting at 67 pounds you lob your arrows down there and yeah i always start with a brand brand new targets i mean my biggest the most money i spend on things continually is fresh targets because plotting is just instantaneous you know if you um if you have three different combinations that you've done with poundage like one at 67 one at 70 one at 64 and you use a black marker circling your arrows during one poundage and a red one on the other and the green one on the other you can look at that brand new piece of paper at the end of the day and say well there's no question the green circles are the tightest i mean and it's that's kind of just a no-brainer and once you know that it's just like what i was mentioning with this guy will who already had you know a thousand bucks in valkyrie arrows i told him these shoot better with this so here's your option you can stay at this poundage but here's where your speed's at if you go up to the poundage that you like here's where your speed's at and if you do that and want the most out of these arrows, if you're going to go back up to this poundage, obviously it's telling us that this these arrows are weakening, uh, or they're you know as we're going up to the poundage you want, they're weakening and they're not responding as well. So we can either reduce your point weight, or we can cut some length off this arrow, you know, and you know for those you can cut it off the back of the arrow. Uh, and have to refletch them all. You know, that would be kind of the easiest way to do it. Um, and so he was able to make the decision of, you know what, I'm fine where that's at. Or, you know, I think he actually said, well, I got a couple, you know, big elk hunts this year. So I actually kind of want the poundage, uh, to be higher. So, okay, no problem. Let's, uh, let's get that poundage up and let's slightly change this arrow just to, just a touch. I think we actually ended up um, adding, we added a, I went to a four fletch on the back of the arrow and um, also a lighted knock. And when that happened, it actually started to suck right back together too, uh, you know, just with that extra weight back there. So learning these things is what's critical to people listening to a podcast and being able to understand where opinions are coming from because there's give and takes either way. Change your poundage, you change your arrow. Change the arrow, then obviously you change something. Change the point, it also changes how the arrow responds. Change your string, also changes. So if you go to, if you all of a sudden have a factory string um, and one probably one company that would be um, I'm going to I'm going to use an older company 
I'll use I'll use an older example just because it's not singling anyone out right now. Back when Kevin Struthers owned Botech uh, and that first started, they were notorious about really promoting speed. And the speed numbers were based off the fact that their strings coming out of there were built for speed. I mean, they were a faster material that had way more stretch characteristics, but through a chronograph at the archery shop, it was going to be faster speed. There was fewer strands, which is going to reduce your longevity of the string, and it's also going to stretch at a higher rate, but it's faster, okay? So if you take that bow that is shooting that, it's going to it's going to match up to one arrow in one way. But then as soon as you take a brand new aftermarket string that's built with 24 strands and a different material like a 450 and you put it on there, well now that heavier string is actually that heavier string is absorbing energy out of that bow as it's shooting. So it's not putting as much energy on the back of that exact same arrow and you haven't changed anything but the string. So now that arrow responds different, you know, and these are the small little details that people don't understand. You know, if you take a factory string off, you put a new one on some strings that are advertised as like a faster string. Yeah. They're faster because they're less strands. There might be a, you know, a slightly, um, a material that has slightly more stretch, but all that stuff, when you go to those lighter strings, you're putting, more energy into the arrow because the string isn't sucking some of that energy out of the system. So, you know, then you're going to have a completely different tune. And these are all the variables that people have to realize factor in to really having the perfect arrow for your setup. Yeah, That's horrible on a recurve, by the way. Not horrible, but it's amazing the difference of the whether it's um endless loop or flemish or whatever type of material even putting uh, you know the quiver on or off the bow there's so many things that change the dynamics of the arrow but yeah i mean i agree with you know what you're saying and i th- i think as far as from a um a, a learning um from you know the people listening in one of the things that um that you know that you had brought up as far as um when guys say, hey, I'm, I'm changing out the factory strings before they've even shot the bow, uh, what what string should I get? The, which is a question I get a lot. Like, who's a good string maker? And I'm like, well, I mean, do you know what's wrong with the, the – fa- is there anything wrong with your factory string? Do you, do you need to – you know, do you need to swap it out? And then, you know, my next question is, all right, well, what kind of knocks are you shooting? You know, I, I mean, what kind of arrows are you shooting? There's a lot of variables in there because when they go to order that, um, you know, string, generally they don't have the knowledge to um, to to really get into the finite uh, the, the the finite parts of the string, meaning the different materials specifically. Now, are you do you are you a fan of factory strings? Do you always swap them out? What strings do you prefer? Uh, do you make your own? Because I don't. I'm too lazy. I don't make strings anymore. It drives me crazy. I just don't have the time. It's like tying flies. Um, but do you? I mean, are most factory strings anymore, in your opinion, worth a shit, or are they need do they need to be changed out? Well, what has to be changed for sure is the center serving. 
um, it's pretty it's pretty consistent that the center serving uh, just starts to starts to slip you know as soon as they start to slip or as soon as someone cranks down hard on a loop and it splits them apart well now as you shoot your knock point starts to raise up the string some factories make a very small center serving simply because of the fact it adds speed to their advertised speed the less weight you have in the center of the string the faster the bow is going to be so these people that are putting this little bitty three and a half inch, maybe a four inch center serving on, the shorter the center serving, the easier it is to slide. It's no different than if you tie your peep sight in and you do over and under knots for for five knots, you could slide that thing up and down with your finger all you want. But if you do it 12 or 13, now it's way harder. Do it 20, you're not moving it. You know what I mean? So the length of the serving matters. Um, so historically, the center servings are always the ones that matter the most when it comes to someone that's spent a lot of time setting up their, their bow or tuning their bow, and then all of a sudden they start hitting lower and lower and lower and lower which is common, and then it's a result of that center serving is slipping up because of the pressure. Um, so I always do that. That in itself is the biggest, you know, taking that center serving off, redoing it, and there's a couple other factors there. One, unfortunately, uh, and this is reality, most, most like bow companies, the string department it's not a fun place to be. I mean, it's, you know, sitting there tying strings and <laughs> ripping strings through the corner of your fingers all day long as you're pulling on stuff is, uh, it isn't fun. And it's not, it's not hard to believe that at some point, some guy that's sitting there having to meet a quota of 200 strings a day is going to start not reefing on his pull throughs as tight or he's not going to have his serving jig set as tight just because he's having to sit there and hold it and his fingers could be getting cramped. Those little things there factor into serving tightness. Not to mention you can actually get a server, a serve, a center serving or any serving to be a little bit more, uh, not necessarily tighter, but it'll lock in better after it's been served once already. Because as you serve a string, it's squirting off the wax, off the individual fibers. And a lot of times that wax is, is a lubricant. It's slippery too. So as you run a tight serving over it the first time, you're removing excess wax out of there. And anyone who's been in a string department knows that normally the floors are just solid. You know, you're walking on wax and it's where you're just continually squirting wax out of the string and it's blobs are falling on the ground once you remove that if you serve it again it's way tighter and it's also uh it's also way more rigid like it you know the movability is almost none after the second time so yeah i you know i think there's good factory strings are definitely being made way better than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago um I shoot right now. I mean, I'm shooting strings that I'm building myself, but I also 
set up a ton of bows with the factory strings on the Hoyt, and I'm just replacing center serving immediately, and that curates a huge issue just right there. Um, and I shouldn't say huge issue in regards to just the Hoyt strings. It's a it's an issue no matter what string. I mean, I've got just sitting here in this pile. I've got there's a a Halon here, a Triax. There's actually a Prime. I'm not sure what model that is. And there's a let's see, this is a PSC Stealth Carbon Air. Um, I'll do it on every one of them because you know that center serving slip is is an issue and you know more so than the issue of like cable separations for the cams i think the industry as a whole has come a long way since you know back in 2000s if you were shooting a lot you were always replacing cable servings because a lot of the cable matthews was the worst worst like guaranteed i had guys putting super glue or a rubber cement rubbing it on in hopes it would stay together for more than 15 shots um (laughs) to the point i saw several and i'm only picking matthews out that's what i shot at the time bunny hop um because the over time shooting they got that cable wear down at the bottom cam guaranteed and all of a sudden, you'd see a guy's bow do flips in the air because they never paid attention, kept shooting, and it'd finally break and just, dong, and then everything was coming apart. Uh, and I'm not just picking on Matthews. That was just one. Compared to now, I, I agree. I mean, they're a much better job. Still not great, but definitely better than they were. Yeah. Well, yeah. And with the single cams at the time, there was an issue because. Matt had a strong, I mean, this probably isn't even worth arguing anymore because we don't even have the issue anymore, but Matt Matt was a firm believer then in actually building cams for each draw length individually. He, did, he didn't really like a modular system because he felt like at the, as you would move to the shorter side of the module, you would lose efficiency in the performance at an accelerated rate. So he took a lot of pride in the fact that there was way less um, efficiency loss between like a 25-inch cam versus the 30-inch cam instead of having a, a one cam that just had a moving module. So because of that, um, there because you didn't have the module, there was like a small area on the cam where it was pretty hard to to clean perfectly, and it would wear. You know, it would it would start to wear. One thing I'll say though is. People should be reluctant to uh, to put super glue on <laughs> string. Um, I've known a lot of people that you know they try to put like little bit of dobs of super glue like on their knock points or their loop, and that super glue will actually it'll it'll actually soak down into the string fibers itself and it'll dry them out. Um, as that dries and cures, it actually dries the string strands itself and they'll start to crack and break down and you'll end up having strings that just shear off so you know definitely avoid doing that yeah no i i agree that's why i was laughing um if it's a short-term fix i mean i've had guys right before they walk you know up the mountain and their their peep is crooked and i've um you know, twisted the D loop over to where it marries up and then glued it on. Um, 
I've done that. But if, if you're having to glue something, I've always kind of been of the opinion of there's maybe potentially something wrong anyway. So I, for that reason that you've discussed, but no, I, I mean, all the things you're talking about, um, you know, our questions that I get, I mean, having, you know, said everything that we, you, that you've talked about, what, what's a good string manufacturer? What would you, what do you direct people towards? Well, I'm working towards it. Um, I've got, I've got a string process that I'm totally confident in. Um, and I'm in the process of, you know, trying to get, trying to get that whole business, you know, set up and established. And, you know, we're, I think we're about four machines in. Um, so, you know, I'm getting close to, to being able to, to get rocking. But, you know, one of the things that I'm going to do, um, at least at this point is I've figured out a way, um, to not only, you know, wrap, but, you know, not only lay up, but tie my strings, um, and also just the material and the specific strand count. Um, I've got one that I'm, that I know is just the most dependable over time with everything factored in. And that's just the way that I'm going to make them. You know, I'm not going to, if you want, if you want someone that's going to, um, give you the ability to say, I only want 18 strands or I want, you know, I want to use this material versus this material, or, you know, I want 28 strands on my cable, but I want 22 on my string. Like that's not going to be me. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that are making the ability for those options, but I'm just going off. If I have you, Joe Rogan, uh, Adam Greentree, Andy, I mean, any of my friends that called and said, build me a bow, I'm going to put the same thing on everybody because I know it's the most dependable. Um, so I don't have, I don't have much confidence in, in a lot of the string makers out there. You know, the one that I used the longest was Winner's Choice and they've really taken a nose dive. Well, you think? <laughs> you pretty pretty much have to replace yeah. everything on them when you get them. Yeah, their process and just their whole way of doing it is just totally went in the toilet. And then, you know, someone left there and started another company of their own, but same exact experience. Um, I, buy, I, buy, I, buy, I buy replacement strings all the time, and I put them on stuff and try them. And there's some where it's like the servings are shit, or there's some where it's like, okay, their servings are backwards, so as you add twist, you loosen one serving and tighten another one. Um, I have some where, you know, they have no idea how to lay them up properly, and then they're not even laced. Um, some where the diameters are so wrong that the cam efficiency changes a ton. There's just, you know, I'm kind of the wrong person to ask because... I'm anal about it. So. No, I mean, I think you're the right person to ask because I am too. And it's hard to get people to understand the, the concepts or the drawbacks of a shitty string. And if you can't hit a stop sign at 40 yards, doesn't really matter anyway. You grab, just grab a string and make it work. But when, if someone's like really trying to get anal, um, about their setup and learning the, the art, 
I think you probably are the right person because I've beat my head against the wall trying to explain some of the different dynamics and characteristics of a string and how much even different materials, you know, what changes when, how it's coming off the cam, the different diameters of serving. And and, and people, I think it's one of the more overlooked aspects of of setting up a bow is is the string. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... um... It's the thing that ties it all together. It's the tie that bonds, man, and it's literally the the crappiest, probably most unappreciated position in any in any bow factory. And when I when I worked at Matthews, I remember going back there and you know talking to him. And I'd be like, "You guys realize that this is the most important part of this whole product, like and." <laughs> You know, and and they wouldn't, they would never think of it that way just because it's based on like pay scale. But it's like, listen, you guys are the ones that determine whether or not someone likes or dislikes this product really fast. I remember their strings stretching up to seven eighths of an inch uh, when I was first, when I was shooting Matthews. And I thought, am I imagining this shit? Did it come long? Like, what? You know, and I'd be shooting out the bottom and I'm like, is my center serving move like what the hell is going on? Obviously, I've I've learned significant amounts since then, but I remember it just be maddening, uh, you know, shooting their string and and it seemed like you know it would stretch the stretch on that was never ending and I, and I don't know if if it actually truly stretched seven eighths or if I you know but I remember just having epic problems with factory strings in that MQ one. Uh, you know, Q2, you know, era, like right in there, um, conquest time frame where it's just maddening day, some days where you were just forced to shoot a, uh, you couldn't shoot a factory string, you had to get a replacement. Well, yeah, and there's reasons behind that. I mean, so single cam bows, obviously it's a single cam, it was one string. So if you have a 103 inch length, uh, you know, its ability to to show you change is pretty damn fast. Um, and the other thing, too, was with the single cam system, as the cable would stretch, your knock point would raise. So as soon as your knock point raised, you know, you start hitting low. Um, obviously, you have a, a very long string. Um, and there was... There was also times where, you know, we had to kind of get into that speed game. Um, you know, you, the the single cam was not as fast as, as, you know, some of the two cam systems that were out there. So, you know, it's give and take. In order to make up for it, next thing you know, uh, you have to end up having to, uh, you know, go to a to a different material um or drop strand count like at one time i know um matthews actually went down to 18 strands on the string because that's what kind of we needed to do to stay above that 300 realm for advertising so there's so many factors that go in um i think a lot of those games have passed in our industry which is good um but the center serving thing is is pretty continual. Uh, you know, center servings are continually the problem. If you can get those replaced, you'll be 
in a good place as it is. Um, but the, well, I guess the last thing that I would say too is one of the reasons why I'm an advocate of replacement strings is simply because, um, I really like to have a backup set on my hunts. So taking the factory strings, you know, if you're someone that does it yourself and you kind of know the basis of building a bow and setting up a bow, it's not that big of a deal to, to take the factory string, replace the center serving, tie your knocks and loops on, get your peep in there, get your bow set to your correct draw length and stuff, and, you know, maybe shoot it a few times. But then take that set off, put it in a baggie, and throw it in your travel case or your bow case, and then put your, you know, put your aftermarket set on. That's probably the right color that you want or whatever. Put those on, and just then you work on, you know, the tape tuning or the hill method or the walk back or the French tuning or, you know, then you put in the the big, time and, and investment of getting that thing totally shooting the way that you want uh you know do it with the second set and just have that first set as a travel set and makes a big difference man rogan uh rogan accidentally cut his string in lanai uh, a couple years ago and you know here we are on a freaking hawaiian island with needing a string and um, and I think he had, I can't remember, I think he had his string, uh, he had his set, set backup string there. We just had to find a bow press and we kind of did it in a way that I wouldn't recommend to people, but we were able to change him out and, you know, he literally ended up tagging out after a change out. So, um, you know, for sure, having that backup set is a wise choice. I mean, it, it's something that I've seen needed more than once. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. One of the things that I bring up before we move on to the next subject is when you're, re, um, when you're, when you're learning this, one of the things I learned really quickly is when, you, when you're reserving your bow, depending upon your strand count um, on your string, you know, the, the diameter of center serving you use and the way that your knock snaps on um, is is a bit more vital than, than, you know, 15 years ago. I didn't know what I was doing. I just shot, right? And and uh, that knock, <laughs> if it's snapping on way too tight or obviously way too loose, it can fall off and drive out your bow, but way too tight, that can seriously affect your, your arrow flight. Uh, also, obviously, knock pinch, you know, depending upon how you're tying on your D-loop. All of these things come into play in in tuning. And I see people all the time that are basically having to, you know, reef their knock onto their center serving. And that can cause really piss poor arrow flight, or it has in, in, in my experience. All of those things need to be taken into consideration. And uh, specifically, if you're listening to someone giving you advice that doesn't know, you know, shit from apple butter about the subject, I mean, that's why I really like what you do because then I don't have to deal with it. I can just send them to you. Um, all of those things are important. Um, you know, if 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 the one of the first things I ask a guy if I'm reserving his bow is, hey, bring an arrow because I want to snap his knock on to make sure it's not way too tight or falling off because 
I don't know how many guys I've seen draw their bow back, their knock slip off, and they dry fire their bow because their their knock wasn't tight enough. And, and and all those things come into play with tuning and everything else, and, and a lot of things people don't take into consideration. Well, yeah, and I wrote an article years ago. I'm not even sure how I even remember this because I, I don't even know the name of the article I wrote two days ago, but um, I know that I wrote an article for Peterson's Bow Hunting years ago called um, – I think it was like knock a problem or something like that. And um, it actually, the reason it came to light was because um, a very high name in that whole, you know, at the time, Intermediate Outdoor Group, um, you know, he's a big, he was a TV personality, he was a writer, all this stuff. You know, he kept calling me with like tuning questions, all you know, continually. And then, you know, he sent his bow and, started looking and it's just like dude do you see how tight your center serving is and he's like well what do you mean i said well you see this huge flat spot right here that you're like wearing into your string i said that's a big problem and he's like well what do you mean so i actually did this article where all i did was take a bow take um put a serving on that fit properly put a serving on that fit loose, put a serving on, and all I did was just go from a 18,000s to a 21,000s to a 25,000 center serving and do nothing but take the same bow, same string, just replace the center serving with different thicknesses and then plot how that bow shot at 50 yards. And it's it's a big deal, you know? And these little things are kind of what falls back into, you know, when people say, hey, I got, you know, I just bought um, a full Valkyrie system and it shoots way better than I was shooting, um, you know, my gold tip, blah, blah, blah. So, well, it's like, okay, does the knock even fit the same? You know, because you're talking two different two different things. There was a There was a point in time where one of the lighted knock companies, it fits so different than a standard knock that your boat, it wouldn't shoot as good. And it wasn't because of the weight of the lighted knock. It was the fit of the knock. And unless you change your center serving to where you had appropriate fit, it didn't matter. And the thing that really magnifies this topic is if you're someone that has a, like when people say, well, I only really want to shoot 63 pounds. Is it really a problem if I buy a 70 pound bow and back it off? It's not a problem until you start to look at things like knock fit because as you loosen your limbs to reduce poundage you also loosen string tension so if you have this knock that fits tight on the serving and it's literally like snapping into this flat spot and you've got a string that you can kind of move around when your bow's at rest in slow motion photography or, or video, the distance that that arrow actually pulls the string forward before it like, you know, snaps off the string is like magnified big time. When you have a shorter brace height, that's a problem. It's pulling it closer to your arm. If you shoot, which every bow nowadays has them, if you have a string stopper on, and it's pulling that string way past your string stopper before that arrow is snapping off, 
the further it pulls it past that stopper, it starts to pull your knocking point down because the string's bending around this stopper. So it'll actually lower your knocking point right at the end of the cycle and you start to get some real funky ass, you know, setups for your arrow rest in order to get a decent, you know, shot through paper. These are all things that, you know, it's impossible to talk about all the factors because unless we start doing what we're doing now or you start bringing up this subject, then all of a sudden it triggers my mind of, okay, well, yeah, this will relate to this or this will relate to that. So, Oh, believe me, yeah, I, was, I was worried this podcast would be three hours because uh, there's so much shit people don't take into consideration and, and overlook. We need to do it more often rather than once. Like as soon as I get back from out of town for a five hour one or <laughs> well, you, you think about a guy spending eight hundred dollars to save three ounces on a sleeping bag, but he's sixty pounds overweight. That's a good analogy to this. You're gonna dump four hundred dollars on a brand new arrow setup when you can't hit a stop sign at forty yards. You don't know anything about the bow. You have no idea, like you know, your for example, your knocks are 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 snapped on too tight. Your cams are out of sync. You don't even shoot a stabilizer on your bow, and you're gonna dump all this money. And I'm not, I'm a Valkyrie fan, so this isn't about Valkyrie. I like the system. I put, I don't shoot their arrows. I put them on different ones. But my point is, is you need to have. A, in, in my opinion, a grasp, a, a solid grasp on the art of the sport because those blank statements of, oh, I put a whisker biscuit on, it shoots better than my drop away. Really? Like, that's a pretty blank statement, right? You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of variables in there. Maybe you didn't have your drop away set up correctly. You know, may, you know there's a lot of different things where, yeah, if you're Maybe just. You're too tight and you're freaking driving your knock you know you're literally pulling your string forward through the bow and because you got that whisker biscuit it's like containing it the whole way through so you don't notice it well and, I, and i've had guys and and i'm not i you know i my tolerance for ignorance is probably shorter than it should be where i've had guys bring a bow into a pro shop see me there come over hey i'm having problems this arrow rest is a piece of shit um, I can't get the, uh, the knock travel right. Uh, and then I look and I'm like, your cam timing is atrocious. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I'm drawing this back and the one peg is hitting three eighths of an inch before the other. It has nothing to do with your arrow rest. Did you even, did you, did you, did you time this? Did you, did you put it on a drop board? Like, like you can't blame it on the arrow rest when there's 14 other problems before you even get to the arrow rest. And people don't look at that. And a lot of products get a bad name because of it. And some products get a good name because of it, if that makes any sense. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yep. Yep. No, I mean, for sure. There's, there's products that build this, like this, this name and this image based off information that's never even truly been tested or tried. And then there, yeah, then there's, there's products that literally someone take out of a box and, uh, you know, don't have any idea what they're doing. I've had some error rests that way. I've had error rests that the people have sent an email said, you know, I bought your error rest, took it to my shop. They said, this thing's a piece of junk. And they're like, you know, I don't know how to set them up myself. I don't know what to do. And then 
I end up getting AeroRest back and look at it, and it's like, okay, they tried to put the reverse spring in it. The freaking, they never even adjusted the actual launcher to the left and right. All they did was run the the micro adjustment all the way to the wrong side. It looks like they tried to somehow adjust the spring tension, and now the lever arms bumping into the bottom of the rest because they've moved the whole rest over all the way to the left with the micro adjustment rather than take using the gang adjustment first and you just start looking at this you're like whoever had this has no idea what to do and so you know a good product for someone you know if it's in the hands of someone that doesn't understand the functionality of it it's you know it, it doesn't matter what quality it is um whereas some like you said could be poor quality um but because they were actually installed correctly and it, and you're trying to compare apples to oranges they actually look better yeah yeah it's a a frustrating part of probably any industry i don't want to say it's a frustrating part of our industry um it's probably that way in every single industry uh you know but it well i know it is you know, because every time I I buy something electronic related and say, well, I bought this because it said, you know, I did some reviews, said it's the best. And then, you know, some computer, you know, guru is going to be like, dude, it's only got 3.4 megahertz and it's using like a primitive Intel processor. I mean, yeah, it's the best according to who? And it's like, okay, I get it. I'm backing <laughs> off. Not, not my category. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's it's true. And I mean, uh, Frank, uh, got, you know, God bless him, um, you know, is, is just getting more into the art of the sport. And I've went ham on him in the office before because he's made – comments that have pent up over 20 years of of um shooting have started to become a bit of a twitch for me where somebody says something and immediately it sets me off and frank will say something and i'm like what and he's like you know he'll repeat it and i'm like really and then 20 minutes later i'm done going on my rant and he's like okay got it and i'm like all right sorry sorry you know but i'm like these are the problems you get when you have a 19 i mean nothing wrong with 19 year old kids but a 19 year old kid working in a pro shop that's blanketing statements out to anybody that's walked in the door with absolutely zero knowledge pretty soon that transferred to someone else and then pretty soon it's gospel and has no truth whatsoever to it um and, and again, it, it affects the consumer in the end, and it, and it certainly will affect you when you're hunting. I mean, broadheads are another good example. Um, you know, the the uh, guaranteed to hit like a field tip. Really? There's got to be some fine print in that shit because nothing is going to hit like a field tip, in my opinion. I mean, there's some that are close when your bow is that screwed up, and then a broadhead will get a bad name because it's not hitting well, and it's like, well, it was your, you know, your bow wasn't tuned. You know, there's so many different variables, and and you're you're a rage guy, right? Is that am I correct on that one? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a I am a rage a rage. I'm a mechanical guy. I mean, if I'm honest, if I weigh it all out, I'm a mechanical person. But you know, certain mechanicals, jackknife style, no. Um, anything that you know, well, I shouldn't say anything, but certain ones that slide back, yes. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I do like mechanicals, but I also like having a fixed blade that actually, you know, kind of groups with those mechanicals in case, you know, I always keep one in my quiver in case, you know, I need to 
do a follow-up shot through brush or something like that. You know, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of, you know, taking shots through brush. Uh, you know, it's, I don't, even if you have high of FOC, I recently heard a discussion with someone saying, you know, if you have high FOC, you know, it's better through brush. No question. It's going to be better through, you know, through things with a higher FOC, but there's still a question of you shoot through a bunch of brush. You, you don't totally know what's going on. <laughs> no, it's a variable that can't be calculated. I mean, no matter how yeah. good you are, no matter how, and this is coming from a dude pumping 600 grain arrows at 90 pounds, shit happens. And I'm, I've shot through brush more than I should have. The arrow ain't hitting in the same spot unless you just nick it. And even then you do not know what's happening. And the one thing that people don't understand you know, mechanical obviously can open, and that's not good. I'm a three and three guy. I usually I've killed way more stuff with mechanicals than fixed blades. Obviously, that's changing now with the stick bow. But the difference of your point hitting and your veins hitting, and and I've tested this is significant as far as what happens after the fact. So, and if you, oh yeah, yeah, I mean, and people don't understand that you've hit the vein, which has now altered the course of this giant projectile that's on the front of your arrow well the wind is hitting that you know where if your if your broadhead hits and nicks the branch and cuts the branch and you know everything continues accordingly there's less from what i have seen deviation compared to broadhead misses totally veins catch kick the arrow knock high now the wind pressure uh, or the or the arrow the dynamics are driving the arrow downward because the vein or your your rudder has changed, you know, significantly as the arrow is flying. Um, I did a piss poor job of explaining that, but you know, I've had guys tell me I shot through brush and hit exactly, you know, the same, and I'm like, well, maybe this time. But believe me, that <laughs> luck will run out. Well, I mean, here's an easy analogy. Like, you know, when 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 I first started driving you know i didn't get a four-wheel drive truck i got a two-wheel drive mazda se5 and you come around a corner with a little skiff of snow and the ass end of that thing gets a little squirrely it's squirrely for a while like it's it's officially spun out squirrely you have a front wheel vehicle and do that same thing the back end could get loose, but if the front end has traction, it tracks, right? So, um, you know, it's the same thing with that arrow. And this is one of the variables that isn't completely fair. So uh, the person I, that was talking about shooting through brush is a traditional person, most likely shooting feathers. Okay, feathers going through brush is a completely different subject than a vein hitting brush. Yeah, they they fold you down. <laughs> they're they're much yeah. happier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's no different than guys that shoot a you know if you go and shoot a stiff vein tech vein on a recurve riser that you're shooting through the shelf, uh, you better be a freaking wizard on tuning paradox so that you have clearance there. If not, then a feather is going to totally be the way to go because as it passes the shelf, it'll lay down flat and it comes back up and then it's grabbing air again. 
Um, yeah, so there's there's so many different variables there, and I feel like with the mechanical for me, it's more compact not only through the air but also through little things like that. And you know, a lot of times that's why I like a a longer low profile vein, or if I have a shorter low profile vein, I'll just shoot more of them, um, just so that like the entire width of that arrow going through. Um, and that's why I'm not a big high prof high profile vein fan is just because of these exact situations you know i think i think immediately to go into spot and stock situations in alberta for early season and there's canola um you know shooting bigger bigger protruding things like that just quickly decrease your opportunity for being able to to get an arrow where you want to go um you know that's just been my experience yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And again, a lot of, um, a lot of variables that people need to take into consideration. And, and, and again, you, you know, I, I'm not speaking for John here. I'm not, well, maybe I am, but I mean, I'm not bashing anyone that it, with anything that I've said, but, and I'm definitely giving, trying to give a bit of a wake up call to people on a lot of this stuff because, it truly, with all of these different variables and, and, and everything else, if your knowledge base, especially if it's somebody that's you're listening to advi for advice, if your knowledge base is in the lower 10, 15 percent of, of, of maybe um, mastering the, the art, that that person is probably regurgitating something someone like John has said and, and maybe not quite getting it right, but is probably missing you know, they're, they're regurgitating 10% of it. Well, the other 90, if they don't know that, um, is kind of, um, I hate to say like cannon fodder, but it's, it's, I mean, it's a shit sandwich is what it's going to be. Like you need to have that total package because everything works in continuity to each other. When you're talking about an arrow f going through an animal, um, you know, and, and, and when you talk about that, um, you know, the, the the great debate of uh the the frontal shot for example was something i wanted to talk about um if uh if you're not comfortable taking that shot or you're not comfortable shooting past 40 or whatever you know so be it i i totally understand that but for someone with like the ability to take the shot the the ice in their veins to not you know you know, punch the clown and, and, and rip the, the trigger like a, a rookie jerking off and, and then just blow the shot. I, I mean, there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with That's a frontal shot. What's that? That should be a t-shirt. <laughs> oh, dude, I, yeah. <laughs> I probably shouldn't even have said that. like a rookie jerking off. God, that is hilarious. I've got a lot, man. I used to shoot with a rough crowd. But, um, you know, when you take shots like that, if 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 you have doubt in your mind, don't take the shot. But I, I'm a huge advocate of frontal shots, and 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 I've taken several cornering too, um, a, a between basically like when you pull the front shoulder off, and you know if you've broken down an animal, the thing basically just falls off. There is a m amazing gap that you can <laughs> pop an arrow through right there with very little resistance. But again. You got good arrow flight, you're dialed in, you're confident in your system, you know, you shoot in good groups. All of those things come into play, and there's a lot of people that just say you should never take a frontal shot. Well, I don't think you should take a frontal shot. You're right. There's a lot of people who probably shouldn't even be hunting with a bow. But 
that is a very lethal shot for me. I've had great success with it, especially hunting elk solo. Um, you know, are you a, a frontal shot guy or do you, are, are you about to tell me I'm an idiot? I mean, do you like that shot? Well, there's a couple of things I want to add in. One, like you and Joe Rogan and like how Joe shoots, because I know Joe catches some slack for shooting 80 pound bows. Um, in those situations, you guys are the perfect advocates of, well, you know, why do you need that? Well, when you have that extra drive, then angle definitely starts to become less important, you know, than, and the easiest analogy is I can take ang- certain angled shots on animals that Sharon and Harry shooting 40 pounds could never do. You know, they're not at 40 pounds. They're, you know, they're not going to shoot through the plate on a big, you know, 300 pound board quarter and away. They can get behind the plate, you know, fine. But in this situation, you know, the quarter and two things like that. Yeah. Having that extra juice is important. There's certainly big soft spots now in relation to the, to the frontal shots. I think it's probably the most lethal shot that you can make if, if it's correct. But I also tread that water lightly based on several things. One, I think frontal shots on the ground are completely different than frontal shots from elevation. Um, you know, people that try to take a frontal shot on a whitetail when it's looking up at you and you're having to pass through you know, 18, 20, 25 inches of neck tissue and everything before you're actually going into the brisket, that's that's different. A shot where you're immediately, you know, it's just like yourself. If you take your finger and you push at the bottom of your neck right on your trach, you know, where you'd have a, a trach put in if you were a heavy smoker, you know, that is a soft freaking hole that goes right into everything that's keeping you alive. And, you know, it would not take much to, to put something through there. Um, and the frontal shots I've killed, I mean, probably, probably the most famous footage I have is that 200 inch double drop muley that I shot at seven yards frontal. And I mean, the death was just seconds. Um, last year, uh, the big, the real big bull that I shot, uh, also a frontal shot. I didn't have a collar. I was self calling. So, you know, I got the bull worked up and he ended up trashing a tree and I got as close to, I could at him. And I actually had a few little branches between me and the bull as he was raking a tree. And I didn't take the shot because I knew that there was no certainty on what that arrow would do, even though there was hardly anything between us but there was something i didn't want to take the chance so i actually waited and then as the bull came away from that uh that rubbing tree that he was trashing he turned and just decided to come right to me and you know as soon as i saw him turn away from the tree i pulled back and i was literally just standing on the edge of a fire road as he walked up to seven yards and he came when he came up he was quartering to me and it was the only shot and I literally shot him right through the front tip of the scapula and went in to 
get one lung in the in the you know and I recovered the bull. So you know frontal shots, those are just two that I'm thinking of right now. Antelope, sh- I mean I've got an antelope kill that was everyone loved, also a frontal. Uh, the bull that I shot on 9/11 was a, a frontal shot on a on a big bull, um, and it, the main thing is knowing where to aim at. Like on a bull, it's where the light the light hide meets the dark hide, and there's pretty much like a volleyball size hole that just goes a few inches in, and you're literally at the front of the heart valves, and you're gonna see blood like you've never seen ever. But you have to know where that exact spot is and you also have to recognize reaction time and distance so i'm not a fan of far frontal shots like any frontal shot that for me personally i think a frontal shot over 20 yards i would think would be high risk for at least for for me and my experience with animal reactions um which is kind of a different subject altogether. You know, I think there's this there's this window um, that is a a very risky window for bow hunters. You know, I think once you get to you know 25 to probably 60 yards, there's enough time for animals to react because the sound is so close, just depending on their demeanor at the time. Whereas you know, when people question me on longer shots. A lot of times if I'm taking a longer shot, that animal has no idea that I'm there. And because the distance of that sound is far enough away from them, they don't, you know, their first reaction is just to pick their head up and look to where they just heard a sound. And by then the arrow's hitting. Whereas when you make a loud sound, when you're within a certain proximity of an animal, it, you literally spook it. It's no different than coming around the corner and your buddy's there and goes, Hey, you know, if if he's right next to you, you're jumping. But if he does it two rooms over, you're like, what? You know, so that's kind of the correlation with the longer shots. But and that and that's relative to frontal. An animal reacting or dipping and turning away on a frontal shot, if it's further than a certain distance, I feel is too high risk for me. But I do like the frontal shot in a lot of situations if it's close proximity and on the ground to where i know my arrow is literally like going right into that good stuff right and and i only i brought that up one reason because i brought up how far i shot an l yesterday and i got believe it or not i didn't get i did not get bashed from uh from that but i had questions wait for it (laughs) (laughs) what I said, wait for it. Oh, <laughs> I know. Coming. You yeah. might have got lucky. You know, and heard, people heard past it yesterday. Now you're bringing it up again. So, well, the yeah. one thing they had no shit. Uh, the one thing I wanted to bring up um, was the fact there was a lot of things I took into consideration. It wasn't like I saw an elk and just let her rip tater chip, right? Like we had multiple bulls in front of us. Um, I felt one, I was, that bow was dialed. I was shooting, uh, you know, consistent groups with broadheads inside of a softball at, at 80 yards and you know which is about as good as I can shoot anyway number two the bull bugle two or three times and I, I told my buddy I said it, it bugles again I, I'm going to take it and I am not suggesting for anyone to do this I'm just giving my thought process behind it 
it was at full bugle. It was at a distance. It did not hear the bow go off. One, because it was at full bugle. One, I knew it was comfortable enough and it was just cranking off bugle after one after another. And I knew how long it was bugling for. Obviously, there's a lot of variables here. I was not worried about the flight time or it reacting on the way. Again, I'm not suggesting for anybody to take that shot, but that is why I took it and I waited for it to be basically at the beginning, um, you know, of a of a three second long bugle. Um, and and I'm only bringing that up because we're talking about the reaction time. That's a shot that at 34 yards, 35, I think is a much higher risk shot. Of course, this is for me than the distance I shot it at because of its reaction time. If it wasn't at full bugle and it was alert at 35 yards, um, it doesn't take much movement to put it in the shoulder on a, on a frontal shot. Um, I, I shot my bull in 16 with my recurve on a, on a frontal kind of a little bit cornering to a shot that I haven't gotten bashed over, but I put it between in that gap between the shoulder um, and the body line and, and I mean, I put it on the ground, um, I think it's like 12 yards, maybe nine yards. I was close. Um, but I, as I'm saying all this, there is some people that probably should never, you know, the kind of people that forget to look through their peep sight, you know, a frontal shot is maybe not the best shot for you. In fact, you may not even want to shoot at an animal, just go hiking with your bow in your hand. Cause a lot of guys pick up their bow a week before season, have three different types of broadheads, couple different types of arrows, you know, yeah, you probably don't want to take a frontal, probably don't want to take any shot. Um, but you know, for the most part, you know, guys that ask me, I'm like, Hey, 20 and in, if you're confident and you feel good and you know where to hit it, make sure and study the anatomy, make sure the bull's not going to turn inside out, but they die fast. I haven't, I haven't had a bull I shot on a frontal, you know, any animal really go more than 40, 50 yards. Most of them, it's like 20. And a lot of them don't even know what happened. They just stand there and take it and just fall over with bloodshed. It's insane the damage it does, especially if you're putting like two inch cutting diameter, like a, a, a rage or a kill zone or something like that. Or in my case, you know, if I shoot like that two inch wide silver flame, you're basically just turning on a fire hose out the front of their body. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah, it is true. Um, well, you know, one thing that was uh, a little bit weird one time for me was I had um, I had a trip where I where I was over in Africa and I ended up being on um, I was there with uh, some coaching and stuff that I was doing and then during my downtime I got to go out and do some hunting and one of the guys that came to my class ended up coming and saying uh, you know would you ever shoot a giraffe? And I just said, you know, and part of me says yes, part of me says no, but I said, you know, what's, what's going on? And so he told me about this situation where he said, you know, we have, my family has a very big place. You know, we started out with a, with a few giraffes, uh, several years ago. And he said, now they've continued to multiply. And he said, what's happening is he said, the oldest bull, the original bull, is recognizing the fact that, you know, our vegetation is starting to, you know, I, I think he just said, you can tell he knows that the vegetation is less than what the the amount of giraffes we have is going to sustain. So he said he's now eating everything underneath. He eats everything low 
And he said all the babies that we have are not able to reach up high enough to to browse. And he said, you know, we've been seeing them do it for a half a year. And he said, you know, we called the biologist and the biologist said, you know, we either need to get rid of them or have to move them. And he said, honestly, the cost of moving this thing is way more than than, you know, if we if we shoot it. And so I just said, yeah, I said, I, you know, that sounds like, you know, that would actually kind of change my my feeling on it you know so as we're getting ready i ended up uh building a a 100 pound bow and i had um 250 grain dangerous games i filled it with salt um so that i could get the i think i got my arrow up to about 800 grains and as i'm out there we're talking about this he said okay so he goes so we're going to do the we're going to have, we're going to look for a frontal shot angle. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah. He goes, frontal shot. And I said, eh, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. And he goes, the front is the softest place on a giraffe. And we had this, this argument about it. And I kept saying, dude, I don't know, like, where that heart's sitting and stuff. And he said, there's so much stuff going from the top of that head down into that heart. And he said, you know, blood pressure loss or anything. He's like, that is the most lethal and ethical shot. And I ended up kind of saying, yeah, fine. But then when I got out there, and it took about a day and a half, and I finally got a shot. I got a shot, and I did it broadside because I was just, I didn't believe him. And even at a hundred pounds with that 800 grain arrow, that arrow like stopped about, and I shot a fixed blade head as well. Um, a pretty small, pretty small cutting diameter one. Um, I think it was like a shuttle T lock or something. And it stopped like you could tell it was one lung. And we ended up having to make a follow up shot. And the follow up shot, I did frontal. And freaking goodbye, Mary. Like, he was mad because he said, I told you to position for a frontal. And I just said, I, you know, dude, the broad, you know, I'm thinking broadside, broadside. And so the second time after he was mad, I did what he said. And it was like, it was like shooting that arrow through a cloud. It was just gone. Yeah. Well, and, and I can under understand that. I mean, if you break an animal down, um, there's not a whole lot stopping anything, you know, up there. Obviously, if you shoot a little too high, you're getting into a thicker, you know, hair where it's coming down like the mane. But, um, you know, animal anatomy, I guess I don't know shit about, you know, Toys R Us, the giraffe. But, I mean, I don't know anything about African anatomy. But North American, there's not a lot slowing the, the arrow down going through. How much penetration did you get, do you think, into that on the frontal? Well, like never found the arrow yeah that's what i mean so it, it was total 30 <laughs> inch whatever long all the way inside the body somewhere yeah. yeah yeah that was um yeah it literally disappeared into 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 the abyss it was gone yeah it was i mean you you know you shoot an, an 800 grain arrow at 100 pounds you know you're talking 113 foot pounds probably going through with a ridiculous amount of momentum um it it was just off gone i mean it like you know it literally like shooting through a 
piece of paper to to paper tune you know it wasn't even relative and yeah i ended up kicking myself because i'm like you know dang this is what he pretty much said the whole time because he told me the biggest bone structure on this animal is ribs shoulder blade and that's it you know obviously when you talk about you know giraffes mainly legs um so yeah it was and then once i got up to it and i was actually like you know holding like holding it and looking and i kind of pushed on the front i'm like yeah this was that was totally the way i was convinced you know i was convinced you could probably easily you could easily shoot one with probably 70 pounds with a you know with like a double double bevel frontal and you wouldn't have a problem you know if it was frontal now broadside obviously i don't think you're going to be packing more juice than i did um and it just at least with that three blade fixed blade it wasn't the right recipe for the for the job that's a hard thing with coming from north america to hunting africa Obviously, when I say hard thing, it's not that hard, but it, it's amazing when you get to an animal that size that, that really makes a moose look like a white-tailed deer, um, you know, in a yeah. lot of ways that, you know, I, of course, I mean, I've only seen probably 10, 15 moose die and almost all of them by a bow. Um, arrow zip right through, you know, a 500-grain arrow with a, you know, good cut-on-contact broadhead zips right through a moose. Um, you're shooting an 800 grain arrow with a three blade and then it basically went in you said what, eight inches or something? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, no, it was half the shaft, but you know, the thing is that that giraffe standing there, you know, that thing's width is probably three feet across. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's wider than a doorway by far. So, I mean, imagine just taking your arrow and sticking it in half a doorway. It would, it almost seemed like it was almost equivalent to me shooting through a door jam, you know, is what it was like trying to go through at least the part of the scapula that I hit. Um, so it was, uh, it was a, a little bit of a wake up call, um, at least for that. But, you know, I think Africa in general is a very good wake-up call for a lot could be a very good wake-up call for a lot of north american hunters because i learned there is where i learned the golden triangle and you know and, and by that i mean the act they you know they call the golden triangle where the leg comes up on an animal and connects to the scapula then the you know then it moves forward uh you know, it goes forward, or sorry, the leg comes up, then where the elbow is, the leg bone, or I guess it'd be similar to like, almost like our bicep bone, goes forward to the front of the chest, and then it connects to the scapula, and then the scapula comes up and, you know, up and back. And my first time there, um, the actually the first thing that I shot, I was on this mentality of what most North Americans are of behind the shoulder, you know, behind the shoulder, behind the shoulder, behind the shoulder. And I shot my first animal, um, behind the shoulder, but I, you know, to me, according to like what we think over here, I was like, Oh, that's money. And he's like, Oh, this isn't going to be good. And I go, what? And he goes, we'll be tracking this for a while. I go, dude, that was right behind the shoulder. He's like, you have to be in that golden triangle further forward. And I'm like, 
I said, dude, I said, it's still an animal. Like the anatomy can't be that much different. And he just said, you know, he's like blood trail and shorter trailing is just so important to us because, you know, this stuff's hard to track in. He's like, a lot of times you can't even see blood, even if you have it. And he just said, you know, when you, you know, if you're flirting with like back of the lungs and liver, that's totally different. So, you know, we ended up finding that animal and then, you know, he literally taught me for the, that was the first time I'd been taught about the golden triangle and how that you want to be, if you think of the bone structure that I just talked about, where the leg comes up, connects to the elbow, the elbow then connects to the bone that goes forward to the front of the chest, then that connects to the scapula, which then goes up and back. So if you connect the top of the scapula, if you imagine a line, an imaginary line that connects the top of the scapula down to the elbow bone, and then you follow that forward to the front of the chest, that's your triangle. If you're in the center of that, it's lights out baby in 20, 30 yards. doesn't matter to the animal. That's done. And that's, you know, that's the, you know, a better part of the lungs, heart, valves, like that's... All the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the stuff. You know, are the other shots lethal? Yes, but I argue that the golden triangle is the key to the vitals. The other thing that we talk about is the key to, I guess, fatals, you know, but you talking like vital, you're not going to live, this is not even in question, you're done, is the golden triangle. Everything around that is lethal, but... At what time? Well, I just, one of the reasons you brought it up earlier, which was a good, I mean, a good example, especially with Joe as well. And I've made jokes about, you know, people, Aaron, why do you shoot 80, 90 pounds? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm unethical. It's a kind of a joke. I'm not unethical, <laughs> but that I'm going to take shots that I can probably get away with that maybe someone else could not because I have the... Uh, the ass behind the arrow and the momentum. But the reality of it is, is I shoot animals in the shoulder. Like I aim purposefully and I'm not saying yep. in the shoulder bone, I'm not talking about the knuckle. Okay. I'm not a dumb shit. Cause I've had people come back and be like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, well, dude, I'm not saying I'm aiming at bone where the angle goes forward. There's, there's like a, a little bit of a V or an indention um, to look at an elk, right? There's, you were just talking about it. Where that, a lot of people will aim just, if the animal's facing left or right, they'll aim two inches to the left of that to not hit anything terribly important. I'm, I'm aiming more, more at the scapula. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about going through, uh, shoulder meat, c catching the back end of that and going through the scapula because I've been going through it for years and I've never had an issue and it's just been more lethal and the animals go down faster. And that's with a mechanical or a, a fixed blade, especially with a fixed blade. Um, and generally, if you do it right and you do that, they're not, a, they're, not, they're not super mobile when you take those things out. They're not exactly hauling ass out of there. When you put it through behind that and you go through both lungs, I'll give you an example. And this was on they're able to cover more ground. Fuck. Yeah, they're able to cover more ground. But when you... When you when you do what you're doing, which I, in some of my first seasons, I did that a lot, and I called it, you know, the shoulder folder. 
And that's why I'm not like a super massive, I don't put a lot of value in pass-through because when I pin the front arms together, that thing's digging a trench on the way out. And when they're digging a trench, they're not, you know, they're not covering 300 yards in 20 seconds. You shoot an elk double lung and he decides to kick on the gas. <laughs> your blood, your blood trailing for three hundred yards for an animal that was dead in twenty seconds. I, I, I shit you not. Last year, I shot a lead cow, um, on it with a cow tag, forty yards broadside. What everybody in North America damn near would have considered a twelve ring. That animal, we we measured it four hundred and eighty-two yards with two on a twelve ring. I mean, pinwheeled, but it was the whole herd had walked by. And it was behind already trying to catch up. And I and I stopped it, put the hole through it, and it looked like Prefontaine and, and Ben Johnson. That, that thing ran forever. And the thing that I was trying to explain using this as an example to people, what if we weren't in a freaking field, right? We were in ag land. What... Put that in, in West... Put that as a Roosevelt. Put that in timber. I don't even know if I would have found it. It ran so far. I mean... Most people would have been doing a circle within 100 yards of where I put that arrow through it, and that thing literally ran 482 or 86 yards. It was insane. But if I would have put it where I normally do, it would have been a 30, 40-yard deal. Yep, yep. Yeah. Anyhow, well, man, we're hitting 145, and you probably have to pee and definitely need to get to work, so I should probably quit Hired. pestering you. I, I did pee. You did good. I, See, I had to pee in a bottle, man. I drank, uh, I had luckily some empty kombucha bottles here, so I took one for the team. Luckily, no one came in. That would have been awkward. Yeah, I just peed on my carpet to muffle the sound. Dude, that's ep that's epic. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shit. Well, man, I, I appreciate you coming on, and we'll definitely have to do these, uh, you know, more often, the more, um, you know, get to kind of the word out, helping guys learn the, the better. And um, next time I'll... I'll have an even bigger, uh, not a bigger list, but maybe a more defined list with people that uh, try to get hold of me with questions that maybe we can help answer. I, pr I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Just let me know when you need me, and and we'll jump on. So and let everybody I mean, know where they can find you. I mean, pretty much everybody knows where you are anyway, but uh, where they can find what you do. Um, YouTube is uh, Knock On Archery, and that's. The spell it like an arrow knock, N-O-C-K-O-N, archery. And then if for social media, it is knock on TV. So N-O-C-K-O-N TV. That's where I'm at. So Cool, cool, man. Well, I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, if you've got time, call me later um, and uh, we get that stuff going for you uh, if you still want to do that. But I appreciate you coming on, man, and uh, good luck with everything. And definitely, guys, if you have any information, any questions on archery or stuff, it's a wealth of knowledge. So hop on that YouTube page, and you'll certainly learn a lot. Cool, dude. Well, I oh. appreciate everything and value what you do in the industry. Stay who you are, and don't worry about the don't worry about the a holes. Yeah, talk trash. Just keep uh, keep jerking it like a rookie, or whatever you said. <laughs> yeah, uh, jerk it, jerk that trigger like a rookie beating off is what it was. Yeah, oh, God, that's hilarious. All right, 